0: So it's not rocket science. It's just Mm -hmm. very sensible, just, you know, just very practical and very sensible with safety, you know, measures at every step we can think of.
1: Right for Saying Sorry Media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary professional healthcare team. If you are dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and author of multiple textbooks, and Dr. Yola Kerpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek.
2: Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kerpenstein.
3: And this is Dr. Susan Lowe.
2: And we're so excited to be back here because we are talking to the famous Dr. Sheila Robertson. Uh, and, and we started that uh, two weeks ago. Now with the next podcast where we are, uh, Susan is still with Sheila in Poland. So we time warped yeah. back in time <laughs> in beautiful Poland, Warsaw. I love Warsaw, Susan. It's a really yeah, it's nice city. city. So yeah, did you get everything. some time to, to look around?
3: Um, Sheila's going to have some some free time here, but I can tell you that we already had one lunch and it was fabulous.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you had lunch together. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. So yeah, I love Warsaw. It's 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 a pretty impressive city uh, uh, when you go there, walk around. So Sheila, what are you going to do?
0: I'm actually going to take the train um, on Monday. I'm going to take the train to Krakow, mm. and I'm actually going to go and pay my respects at Auschwitz. Oh. and um, have a tour. I, I feel that I, that's what I want to do. And then I'm going to look around Krakow um, and then to take the train back and then I'll be flying back to the States. I am Very so impressed
2: cool. that, yeah, that you're going to do that, Chile, because it is obviously some awful history there and, and we cannot forget what happened there. So, uh, so that's something that uh, is probably pretty emotional, too, to go there.
0: Yes, okay. I, I really want to pay my respects and have some quiet time, yeah. just um, seeing what really happened, you know, just learning about what happened. You know, I've read about it, but I think you don't know until you actually are standing there looking at it. That's yeah. what I expect. Yeah, yeah. I but imagine. we want
3: to talk about the anesthesia.
2: I <laughs> it. <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about anesthesia. But uh, So, Sheila, once again, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast. Uh, we have been looking forward to this for a long time. Susan and I were like, we okay, okay we're, we're you and her, and Sheila will be together, so we need to catch her and, and talk to her. So very yep. excited yep. to have you there. And I think uh, when we finished the last podcast, Susan was dying to ask a new question. So, yes. Susan.
3: Yay! Yeah. So, uh, uh w- when we left the last podcast, we had been talking about the, I guess, pre-anesthetic preparation. Uh, so we talked about the calm environment, the low stress techniques that we could use and why it's important. And we talked a little bit about the examination when we need blood work, when we might not need blood work. And, uh, out of that uh, made me think about one of the problems that as a as a feline specialist and certainly for you in anesthesia is a big one, and that's cardiac disease. So we know from some recent studies, um, a couple of large studies, that at least subclinical cardiac disease is, and mainly hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, pretty common in cats. Uh, hard to tell looking just looking at a cat if they have it or not, and yet it's going to, uh, uh, could, Influence what happens under anesthesia, and it certainly uh, has, may have a lot to do with what fluid rates we use. So, so I'd just like you to talk a little bit, a little bit more about that and, and like what in
0: practicality, like what can we do to minimize that risk? Yeah. So I think people need to realize that although it might be subclinical, probably one out of every five cats you just look at. Quite likely has underlying, even if it is subclinical, heart disease. And that's a really scary There's statistic. 20, so one in five yeah. is 20%. Yeah. And you don't know who it is. And even on the best clinical exam, you may not be able to know which cat that is. Because you, you can. can have disease without a murmur. Correct. But that's really important, right? Correct. You yep. can even have heart disease, a cat can have heart disease without no a murmur. murmur. Um, so, and a murmur might mean nothing in a cat when you work it up. So I think that when they have um, HCM, um, even if it's subclinical, anesthesia and the whole surrounding events around anesthesia can be the tipping point mm. where it can all go very wrong. Sure. So first yeah. of all, um, the stress, and we've talked about decreasing the stress because obviously, a cat with subclinical heart disease that has a big rush of, um, you know, catecholamines that is not. Those two go, don't go well together, yeah. and hypertension. And then the other thing is that these cats have, you know, fairly serious changes in their heart function. And in the past, we've been giving, you know, quite high fluid rates. And if we just look at the blood volume of a cat versus a dog, it's very, very different. So the blood volume, you know, on, on a mils per kilogram basis or a percent of body weight is much, much smaller in cats. So we should never have been giving them the same fluid rate as dogs. And the other thing is, even in dogs, um, nobody, when we started looking at, when they did the fluid guidelines, the biggest question was, where did those guidelines ever come from? (laughs) Who just made up this number? (laughs) 10 mils, where's 10 mils per kilo per hour come from? And there's very, very little evidence-based, you know, to, to support that fluid rate. So with, you know, critical thinking and looking at the difference between the dog and the cat, what we're recommending now is that the cat, you consider going, starting at between three and five mils per kilo per hour. So we're talking much smaller volumes than people have been giving. And so perhaps the stress plus too high a fluid rate in cats with subclinical heart disease then led to maybe a problem. And it's hard to say cause and effect what it would be really nice to see is if everybody adopts these new um, low stress plus decreased fluid rates, if the next time we do a survey, we have a much lower mortality rate in cats. Mm. And that's what I would, you know, that would be the way scientifically to see if our, you know, intuition and guidelines have made, made a difference. difference. Yeah. So I think that's um, just really, really important. And I will be honest, there are certain cases, if they're going to be very, very sharp procedures, Are not likely to um, be much fluid loss or blood loss, I will certainly have a catheter in for emergency care, but, you know, maybe not even, if they're coming in uvolemic and they're not dehydrated, um, they may not even actually require fluids for a Mm 20-minute diagnostic procedure. Mm -hmm. So I think we're thinking about it very, very differently and that they are unique. And just, you know, every time you look at, any cat that you're working on, it could be one that one. could really, be that cat. Yeah, it could be the one. That the other four you did that day are good, but this is the one.
3: <laughs> you know, it's a big change because um, you and I have been veterinarians a long time. And probably like me, uh, when you went to school, we were talking about food rates for like 10 to 15 mils per kilo. And then for a while, it was lower than that. We were down around like maybe five, you know, and so it's really come down over, over time. And it's really been interesting to me to see that we didn't necessarily have a lot of evidence for those earlier numbers. And we've become much more conservative about rates. So just one quick follow up question. If I have a patient, because I have many, that I know have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, they've had an echocardiogram, for example, but they're stable, right? So if I I know I have a patient and he needs dentistry, so uh, not, not so much talking about the drugs, but let's stick with the fluids for a minute. So I do want IV access. Let's say he needs a fairly long dentistry.
0: Would you be even more conservative on a fluid rate? I would be. Well, so the one thing we also talk about is that, you know, the three to five is mils per kilo per Per hour is a starting rate. But if you're doing a four or five hour dentistry, you would um, lower your rate each hour um, or even sooner if everything is stable. Blood pressure is good. Um, Obviously, with a dental, the cat's all wrapped up. There there isn't actually a lot of um, evaporative losses. It's not like a wide open abdomen with all the intestines being looked at and evaporated. Um, So they're not actually, and, you know, they don't tend to bleed a lot from dental procedures. So they're not actually losing a lot. I mean, there are some respiratory losses, but they are, you know, very, very small, um, you know, losses over overall. So I I would be very conservative. And then it's not just that. It's like, you know, ideally, um, because we're talking about these tiny volumes, and so, you know, we we might be talking in a small cat, three kilogram cat, nine mils an hour. And so for me, that means um, doing accurately. So a syringe pump would be ideal. But if you don't have a syringe pump, you know, it'd be nice to... um, have some kind of you know, control over your fluid rate. Um, and some people use the uratrols, oh, right. so the little container that goes from zero to 100. But the way I advise and we, rec- we recommend it and we put it in the guidelines, a built-in safety factor is that um, just because that chamber holds 100 mils, we don't advise filling it with 100 mils. So what we say is like, why don't you figure out what that cat needs in an hour? So let's say it's nine mils. So you fill your chamber up to maybe nine or ten mils, because some people will will, will be asked to give um, antibiotics, and so they may fl- or they're giving you know an emergency drug, or you know they might be giving maybe whatever, whatever, yeah. And they turn the little roller up, and and the fluids go in fast, and then they forget to turn the drip rate back down. So if you forget to turn the little control roller back. Have a hundred mils in your little container. The cat mm. gets a hundred mils of fluid before it shuts out. Mm. But if you make that mistake, all it gets is one hour's worth of fluids done, and then everything stops. And so it's a, a yet another built-in safety factor without having to go and think that you should have to buy a you know a syringe pump or something. Yeah. So it's a very very simple built-in safety factor. Great tip. And then once you've got your nine mils in, you fill up your chamber again for the next hour or even less, and on the go. Love it. So it's not rocket science. It's just mm-hmm. very sensible. Just, you know, just very practical and very sensible with safety, you know, measures at every step we can think of.
2: Yeah, that sounds, that, yeah. Great tip, great tip. So I want to switch gears a little bit again. Uh, you know, one of the... I would guesstimate the most stressful times in anesthesia is when we have to intubate. Um, and we're always worried about the cat because, you know, they clamp down. It's difficult to do. And, and, and I really love the pictures and the explanations that are in these anesthesia guidelines because they're so focused on the cat. What I would like you to do is to explain a little bit a kind of newer device which is called a supraglottic airway device or S-G-A-D device or V-G-L, um, because that is something that probably our listeners may not be as accustomed to, and there are some obviously advantages and maybe some also some disadvantages to this device compared to the endotracheal tube.
0: Yeah. So anyone that's intubated cats knows that um, they can be tricky because of the laryngospasm, and their airway is already very, very small. So if you are traumatic or, you know, um, not careful, even a little bit of swelling in that mucosa can cause a huge um, decrease in the diameter of their airway and cause problems postoperatively. operatively mm-hmm. um, So we, we know that. The other issue, before I get onto the Superlod airway devices that um, Dr. Broadbelt showed in his study and, you know, again, cause and effect and relationships are hard to, um, you know, put together. But he showed that for very short procedures, that actually intubating a cat increased the risk of having, you know, morbidity or mortality. And so I've also looked at some of the reviews of people that worked.
3: Can you start over again? Sorry, we, we dropped out. Do you want, you want her to start over again from the starting about the b
0: Sorry, I was on mute. So,
2: um, yeah, I heard the first three lines and then it stopped and then now we're back. So if we can do this part, yep. just the answer okay. over, that will be great.
3: Great.
0: you have a question just my answer? Just your answer about intubation. Yeah. So we all know that cats can be quite challenging to intubate because the airway is very small and they do have laryngospasm very, very easily. And even you know, if you traumatize that larynx, you know, at all, you're going to have airways in the causal swelling and a decrease in airway diameter. And one of the commonest causes in the post-opathy period is upper airway obstruction. The other thing is that um, nearly all cats that are admitted to uh, emergency rooms with aspiration pneumonia have recently been anesthetized. So for short procedures, if you actually use lidocaine on the larynx, and then pull the tube within, you know, 15 or 20 minutes, it may be that they can't actually protect their airway as well. So there's a lot of figuring out to do with what goes on with cat's larynxes, but they do need to be, if you use an endotracheal tube, at an adequate depth, make them open their airway. You have to wait and be patient um, and get it in. But this, uh, because of the high incidence of airway um, issues postoperatively. Um, A company, actually, the person that designed them is a human anesthesiologist, and he designed them, um, the first new gel was designed for humans, and now there's one for cats, and there's one for rabbits, and they're making them for other species as well. And so it is a device that does not actually enter the trachea at all. So it sits over the larynx, and the tip actually sits in the esophagus, so you actually have a, have a seal over the airway. So you're not actually entering, you're not passing through the retinoids and you're not going into the sensitive, um, lining of the trachea where all the cilia are. So you're avoiding all of that. But when you hook it up to a capnograph, you can see that you have a completely hmm. normal, um, respiratory pattern, a nice square wave as you would with an endotracheal tube. And, and there's quite a lot of studies that have shown um, when they tested veterinary um, students who had never intubated a cat before, the time to achieving a uh, secure airway, meaning a normal catmograph reading, was much quicker with the body airway, and so was the success rate, compared to the endotracheal tube, and requires less propofol. So it is a, a good alternative. It, there's a learning curve, but the company have training modules on their website that you can do. Um, I I do feel much more comfortable using that device, well, um, also endotracheal tubes, along with a catnograph, because um, especially if you're moving a cat around the hospital, like going to diagnostics Mm. and then going to a different room and then moving, um, as the cat is lifted up and so on, endotracheal tubes can um, slip out and Mm -hmm. then slip down the esophagus and so can um, V-gels can be displaced. Yep. So it is nice to always have confirmation with a, um, a graph. But, you know, if you're very attentive and you listen and so on, um, you know, that is, you know, the person is the best monitor, not a piece of equipment, so that would be important. But they're very, very um, ingenious um, pieces of equipment. They come in several different sizes. Um, So I've done as small as a one kilogram kitten who was going to be anesthetized every day for several days in a row for wound care. Mm. And there is evidence that they, um, well, they don't cough when you take it out, they eat sooner. So maybe we have been causing sore throats Mm. in the past. So I think there's a lot still to learn about them and the learning curve. And even when I know I'm going to use one, I still have my laryngoscope My endotracheal tube, everything ready in case I need to switch. Um, So, Mm. but I I think they're very well thought-out devices, and they're 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 designed specifically for the cat. Mm. They're not. It's not a human neonatal baby piece of equipment that is just getting used in cats. They designed it based on the cat's anatomy, Mm. and the prototype. I don't know how many prototypes they had. But they work really hard to get it right. Mm.
3: It's quite a, it's their amazing company. It's a Docs Innovent yes. is the company yep. in the UK. Yep. So I can attest because we use them uh, for some patients in our practice. And yeah. I do think they're quite, they're quite revolutionary. Yep. And they're,
0: they're very um, willing to um, train a, yes. a group of people. And their website now has lots of training on videos, airways, on video yeah. airways for, well, rabbits and cats. Yep. So yeah, so I mean, that's that's so
2: before. Sorry, Susan. I know that you were okay. next, but uh, I have one more question, and that's why I want to stress. Uh, you just said that at the end, uh, you can also use it for rabbits and rod- for the smaller type animals. Eh? So it's not only for cats, because I remember that most of the rabbits that we did, we used this technique on too.
0: Yes, but it's a it's a different. It's not the cat V gel. There's a specific. No, I understand. Diff- right. It's a very specific. So the. The cat ones all come in a lovely purple, purple. color and <laughs> yeah. the one for the rabbit is designed to fit the rabbit anatomy and they're completely different and different sizes and they're green. So there is two different sets. They're not transferable between cats and rabbits. Right. Exactly. Okay. Great. So
3: So I just, I want to follow up a little bit about something that you mentioned actually back in part one of this, when we were talking about the multifactorial reasons why cats have higher morbidity and mortality than even healthy cats, than dogs do under anesthesia. And so one of the things you mentioned um, was hypothermia. You know, that's tied to small body size. It's tied to a bunch of things. But I just wanted to talk a little bit about the importance of uh, uh, trying to avoid cats getting cold in the first place. Um, and and uh, uh, and what we can do, um, even things like pre-warming patients, which I think is not always something that we think about.
0: Yeah. So clearly they are so small, so their surface area to body weight ratio is, um, you know, very different from. Well, I mean, there are some dogs the same size mm. as cats, and yeah. they're they're prone to that too. Right. But overall, cats as a species are more likely to get hypothermic. And we know that that, well, first of all, for a surgeon, that's never good because when they're cold, they bleed because the whole clotting system is defective um, and delayed. So we have that, immunosuppression, you know, there's all sorts of things. Less anesthetic is required, but yet if we don't adjust our vaporizer We're overdosing them. Poor recovery. And then what we find is that they, um, there's very good data that's been published showing, um, the time to the, to extubation and sitting up is very prolonged, um, if they come out of surgery cold. So that takes, you know, that is adding time, which is never good. Um, and obviously personnel time as well. And then people actually, if they're asked what was the most unpleasant part about waking up from anesthesia, everyone assumes that they would say pain, but it's actually often feeling cold or feeling nauseous. And shivering. And shivering, Mm. it's very, very unpleasant. And then shivering uses up or requires a lot more oxygen. And so then you've taken them off 100% oxygen onto room air right at the moment where they actually need more. So then you run into myocardial um, hypoxia and then, you know, it just snowballs from there. So although the, every, the, the human data shows that pre-warming, which means, you know, when the patient is getting ready to go to surgery, they put a blanket on them and actually actively warm them. And that's been shown to, um, you know, stop or prevent or, you know, ameliorate, ameliorate, ameliorate yeah. hypothermia yeah and there are there have been a couple of studies in dogs and they haven't actually proven that in dogs but they didn't do it exactly the same technique they used an incubator and then they, they came wow. out and so on hmm. so i think intuitively it should work and i would never not do it just right. because two studies have said it doesn't work so I like to make sure that the waiting area is very, very warm, that they have an ability to create their own little microclimate. So cats like a place to hide for stress. So if you give them a little box to hide in, inside that box is a lovely warm little, with a fleece blanket. They're keeping themselves warm. And the other thing people get is it's not when you start anesthesia, they start losing body heat. Yeah. The minute you sedate them, Yep. So the minute you sedate them, that alters the central nervous system and the hypothalamus and all the regulation, or causes vasodilation. So they can actually lose quite a lot of body heat between the time they're sedated to the time that you're inducing them. So you're already sure. down, and then you induce them, and again, the inhalant agents cause vasodilation, and then you get lost to the environment. So keeping them warm, giving them a little box. Create their own microclimate, you know, always have towels and blankets underneath them at all times. They like to be wrapped in a towel for safety anyway. Um, and then once they move to the procedure or to the surgery room, we have lots of choices. Right. We have um, warm air blankets that blow warm air, and if they're um, not turned on until the animal's draped, the actual data on contamination of the surgical site. Is, is not something to be concerned about. And there's filters that need to be changed. We have um, specialized warming blankets um, called hot dogs. Um, so we have those. And then we have the circulating water blankets yes. as well. And the only thing that we are adamant that nobody uses because they're dangerous are electric blankets. I've seen- I Heating think, pads, things like, like that. Yeah. Pad, yeah. So sort of warm, warm gloves, with water like rubber gloves filled with water and put in a microwave Uh, no yeah um those rice sacks and socks the hot water bottles those types of things can cause serious burns electric blankets can as well so we definitely do not recommend um use any of those things
3: Mm -hmm too focal, right? There's, it's too yeah.
0: like skin, skin contact, they're, they're very skin, focal. Skin yeah. um, and obviously when they're asleep, if they overheat, they don't... They can't they, move. They can't move. Yeah. And if we're using um, basal constrictors, you don't have the ability to take the heat away from that focal site. Spot, yes. And some of the burns can be quite horrendous from using the wrong type. And the hot, the, the you know, the bags of hot water, the, the old IV fluid bags that yeah. are hot, they can cause a burn. And then after an hour, they're actually <laughs> yeah. colder than the cat, so they they actually draw heat out of the animal. So they're not useful.
2: And when they get burns, then you have to go back to the surgeon and you have to nest them <laughs> again. So we're back to zero. So, uh, yeah. so, so, we so, want so to save uh,
3: our patients. Yola, we know. want to keep them from the surgeons. I know
2: it's always it's always the theme of this per podcast for some reason. It but um, so it, so it, we have about eight, eight minutes left, uh, okay. and, and and I would like to focus a little bit on recovery too, because I think that's a really really important thing. What I also love about these guidelines, and I've said this so many times already, that I should be kind of a uh, you know you should use me for for <laughs> commercials uh, for these guidelines, but. I think the algorithms that you made uh, are just mind-blowing here. And I love algorithms. I'm kind of a statistics guy, so I love simple questions, yes and no, and what do you do then? And and so maybe this is the introduction to our recovery part, the last couple of minutes of our podcast. And one of the algorithms is calling out troubleshooting dysphoria. So first, tell me what dysphoria is, and second, what what – role does it play in the recovery process and why is is not only the pre-work, the anesthesia itself, but then post anesthesia, that period is so important?
0: Yeah. So we mentioned last week that the the time where cats get themselves in trouble, so sixty one percent according to the large David Broadbelt study, sixty one percent of deaths occur in the first three hours after the anesthesia the vaporizers off and the in theory seizures done that's where we get in trouble and so i'm going to give a shout out to um jennifer sager the um specialized technician nurse that we had on the committee she actually created that algorithm all the algorithms have hours and hours and hours of um testing them out showing that people retesting them making sure we didn't and at a dead end anywhere yeah but jen jennifer worked on um that one so dysphoria um is when the cat you know is starting to wake up and it's clear they're going to be you're taking out the either the v gel or the endotracheal tube and then for want of a better word they go crazy they right. go ballistic so they start flopping around so things well a first of all they can injure themselves they can injure personnel they can pull out their iv line or um, where, you know, they can just disrupt the, road, just, yeah. the, the surgery that's right. just been yep. done. So, you know, we often don't know what the actual cause is, and sometimes, you know, you need to do something about right away to figure out what's going on. Um, so it, a lot of people used to blame opioids, and mm. we, we really don't think that opioids are a high cause of this dysphoric wake-up. Um, usually, So it can be pain, Mm. and it's in the algorithm, pain, um, a very sudden uh, abrupt arousal Mm. in a very noisy, brightly lit room, that would be good. So we advise, you know, that you take them away somewhere nice and quiet and actually have a nice, gentle, slow, comfortable wake up. My advice is to always keep them wrapped up because if they do start struggling, you can control them and control the situation. And then we have the the, the troubleshooting, you know, is it this, is it that, you know, reassess. Um, And then we have some suggestions for sedating so you can buy yourself some time and reassess and then go through the algorithm again. So we're hoping that people, because the algorithms can be printed off independently, that people, you know, print them off. And so the recovery area would have those algorithms like posted on the cat's cage. So people could you know, you know, know what to do at that point and so, it's right at hand it's and it's quick. right
2: at yeah hand and, I love and that idea and, it, and it's quick yeah and, and they hand. are awesome yeah. awesome yeah. I love them I mean they're they're yeah. wonderful so so great I have one more question for you before we have to wrap up and that is that I realize that there's a lot of veterinarians probably listening that don't have the luxury of having a full term anesthesia uh, person next to them you know when I was at university I had not only one anesthesiologist, but I had maybe three, and students, and everybody was watching and poking the cats all the time to see if they were doing fine. So, what would be your advice for people like that? Uh, fire your receptionist and get an anesthesiologist in the, in the <laughs> house, or uh, what can they do?
0: So, my entire life, although I am an anesthesiologist, um, in the very very busy clinical practices that that I've worked in, when there's 30 cases going a day, I'm clearly not the person doing every anesthetic. So your wing, wing people are your technicians and nurses, and they are worth their weight in gold. Yeah. I mean, they, I, I mean, an anesthesia day can't, or a surgery day can't run without good um, nurses and technicians running anesthesia. And so they can, I would advise, like, I think a lot of the anesthesia um, CE that we offer is, is, is best aimed at getting technicians and nurses to come. Right. Um, and because a lot of times, once they're highly trained, the surgeons ask them questions. Absolutely. Um, because they're doing it all the time and they feel very responsible. The other good thing is they're often the person that met the cat when it came in, so they know the cat's personality. Yep. They follow it through yep. the whole process. They see it afterwards, um, and they take a lot of pride in in that. So specializing um, in anesthesia as a technician is is one way to go about it. Making sure if you're um, running up, uh, you're the owner of a practice that your technicians go or do web get webinars yep. on uh, or CE in anesthesia training, and those are um, you know they're. A lot more than there used to be and then there are wet labs that um, are totally appropriate for technicians to go to as well as veterinarians in in anesthesia Um, so I think and then there's obviously there's um, you know Facebook groups that um, anesthesia technicians have formed on their own Um, very very interactive and they have their own um, specialty group as well a lot of good technician and nurse journals that actually have great anesthesia articles i mean they're at a very high level um but yeah aiming at your wing people who are your nurses intentions to keep anesthesia a running smoothly doing a good job and getting the day you know there's not delays in your surgical schedule
2: so really what you're saying is hug your technician every day and thank you <laughs> for all the wonderful work that they do. And I totally agree with
0: you. Yep. Yeah, they're, they're, um, they're, the anesthesia part is um, extremely important because, you know, getting a cat through, and like, just getting them through the anesthetic is, is one thing, but how well yeah. they get through the anesthetic yeah. and yeah. how nicely they recover and it's not aversive and they're not having a horrible experience and they arrive back home ready to yeah. eat, and they're comfortable, is something to be very, very proud yeah. of.
3: Yeah. So I want to give a shout-out to the technicians who, who work with me. I, I'm privileged to work with amazing um, amazing nurses, and uh, we, you know, we, we can't function without them. They're really, as you say, Yola, know, they're worth
2: their weight in gold. Yes. Absolutely. So – Sheila, I have to say sorry, we're out of time, but I love these <laughs> okay. two podcasts. They were fantastic. You are such an amazing person, and we have to get you back because I want to talk about Lap of Love with you too, which can yes. fill another two ones. Because and there's so many other things I would love to talk to you about, but the time is up, sadly. So, uh, but uh, and I want to wish but you a be- lot of Before we go,
3: we'll- Oh, before sorry. we go, one last thing. I just want to remind everybody that the AAFP Feline Anesthesia Guidelines can be downloaded for free from CatBets.com.
2: Absolutely. And you can listen to the PER podcast uh, through various, various ways. So we are now also on iHeartRadio. We're on Spotify, uh, on your Apple devices, on your Android devices. So download us. And then, you know, register yourself as a continued listener and then also give us a high review because that will be fantastic so sheila thank you so much for being here and good luck tomorrow i know it's going to be tough but it's it's wonderful that you do that and and you're such an amazing person so thank you from the bottom of my heart
0: yes thank you sheila so much yeah thanks thanks so much Yoli, and yeah i i'm just like feeling all very warm and happy inside <laughs> that you've mentioned coming back to talk about my new passion with oh. the older cats. So yes. I'm, I'm very, very happy you slipped that.
3: We will do that. But yes. Definitely. Wonderful.
0: So thank
2: you, Susan, for being Yay. in Poland and giving wonderful lectures <laughs> together and, and being on the podcast. And,
3: and uh, well, and Yola, thank you because probably what people don't know is that Yola is like the technical guy for all of this. Um, all I have to do is like, you know, Talk. <laughs> but Yola, Yola runs the technology, so. Thank you. That's Thank your you. strength,
2: talking. Very good. All <laughs> right. Is. Okay. Thank okay. you both. Talk to you later. Bye bye. <laughs> Hello, this is Dr. Yola Thank you for listening to our podcast. Please note that all opinions given here are purely Dr. Susan and my interview. Veterinary medicine is a beautiful but complicated profession as no animal or case is expected to say.
3: Well, there's one thing for sure. Yeah. Yola and I have strong opinions and we're not afraid to say them. So that's a good thing though,
0: isn't it?
1: Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat Clinical Medicine and Management and August's Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. You can follow her on social media with the handle at CatVetSusan. Dr. Yola Kirpenstein is a diplomat of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently for Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVetSX. (sniffs) Brrrr, <sniffs> brrrr.